Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 95 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And I, I think I'm awake. I just, I came back, I did a very quick, literally like 28-hour whirlwind trip to see my son Jacob in Philly. <laughs> Stepped off the train at 11 o'clock last night, and we're recording on Saturday on morning. Saturday morning, and it's foggy outside, too, so that makes you feel like you're a little bit in a cotton ball, doesn't it? Yeah, like, am I awake? Am I not awake? But hopefully we can find our words this morning. <laughs> and um Speaking of words, I have a, a little correction. I misspoke on episode 94. I was referring to Todd Goldberg's essay, When They Let Them Bleed. And instead, I called it a short story, which Todd corrected us. So thank you, Todd. Yeah, thanks, Todd. Thanks for listening. Yes, that's right. We know you listen even when we're not talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you currently reading, Chris? I am currently reading Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. This is by Lori Gottlieb, who is a therapist, and she it's part memoir and part how therapy works. It's really, I don't know what I expected, but it's not what I expected. I think it's really well written. It's so engaging. I got sucked right in. I think I downloaded like a preview of it because it was one that I'm a huge fan of therapy, so me too. The book caught my eye when I first heard about it. I am reading it on my e-reader, and I'm at the 29% mark. Good. So yeah. I'm going to be keeping reading along. But what happens is she's engaged to be married. She's in her, I think, her late 40s at this time. She's a single mom. Her kid is eight, and she has this boyfriend. They're together two years. They're going to be getting married, and he announces he doesn't want to love with a kid. Because he's already raised his two kids who are out of the house. And he just decides he doesn't want it. So totally spirals her yeah. completely, you know, blindsided by this. Because there were no signs of any kind of discontent. But throughout telling this, she's talking about some of her clients who are, you know, they're not named. Some of them are probably composites and things like that. But she's talking about some of their issues. And then she talks about her backstory. She was initially in the film TV industry, which is kind of cool. So she worked on ER and Friends when they were first starting. That's kind of Yeah, neat. I had no idea. Yeah. That's so cool. So that's her backstory. She ended up going to medical school and then getting into um, talk therapy. So I'm really enjoying it. So it's the it's kind of dealing with the aftermath of that experience. She's going back yes. and looking at that. Wow, going that back. So really she thinks good. she's just going into therapy for crisis therapy. You know, mm -hmm. just a couple, you know, a couple sessions just to get confirmation beyond just her girlfriend saying, "God, what an asshole!" Right. Um, she wanted that from her therapist. So she actually finds a guy who's married because she wanted it to be a guy, somebody who was married with children who could empathize with this guy leaving her because of her kid and, and whatnot so it, but you know as when you go into therapy as she talks about what you think you're going in for is sometimes you know I think about when Harry met Sally mm -hmm. remember that scene mm -hmm. where um the two guys are at the baseball uh, the football stadium and uh Harry is saying you know his wife has left him and his friend played by uh Kirby what was his name the actor oh great actor 
says, you know, when there's an affair happening, it's just a symptom that something else is wrong in the relationship. Right. And Harry says, yeah, well, that symptom is fucking my wife. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the classic lines right. of movie yeah. cinema. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, one of the funny stories that uh, Lori Gottlieb tells is she's in the first days of this crisis. And, you know, she had laid her clothes out and was getting ready for work. And she's in a therapy session. And one of her clients says, is that a pajama top you're wearing? <laughs> she's like, she looks down and she's like, oh. And she's thinking like, do I lie? Do, do I tell the truth? Like, you know, because all of these things are about establishing trust with, right. a, with a, a client, a patient. And so she says, yes, it is. And it was one of the a pajama top that her ex-boyfriend had gotten her a bunch of funny ones that had different sayings on it. And this one said... Namaste in bed. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, funny moments in therapy. Yeah. So that's maybe you should talk to someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed by Lori Gottlieb. I heard an interview with her when it came out, and it sounded really fascinating. So I'm glad to hear more about it. Thank you. Yeah. I'm reading Northernmost by Peter Guy. This one is the one that's out April 14th. So it's a little ways from now. But there are two other books in the series, which I'll talk about because I just read them. So Northernmost is about the Eyed family, which the other two books are about as well. So I'm not going to talk too much about it, except to say that it, all three of his books go back and forth in time. They deal with two different eras. And this one actually, unlike the other two, has 2017 as one of the time periods. So it's very different than yeah. the others. And, it's, and then the other time period is 1897. So vastly different, but dealing with, you know, historical family members and things like that. It's very cold and Arctic part. Half of it's in Norway and the other half is in northern Minnesota, mm. which I've kind of been enjoying because we seem to not be having much of a winter. Mm, I know. It's been really warm here. Yeah. So it's been kind of fun to just be somewhere cold and very different than where I live. Yeah, that's great. It really ties in well with the other book that I'm reading, which is called Winter Lust. Finding Beauty in the Fiercest Season. It's by Bernd Brunner. It's originally published in German, in Germany. It's translated by Mary Catherine Lawler. And it's a beautiful book. I've just been picking it up and reading some of the chapters here and there. It's one of those types of books that makes me think of like the secret life of trees in some ways, because it's talking about things like, is it true that when you see squirrels fattening up, that it's going to be a cold winter and other things like that. So I'm enjoying that. And I am enjoying the winter snow in this book because right. we're not getting it here, yeah. which is really bummer for me because I it's, love snow. Yeah, it's Chris's favorite season. I know. I know. Yeah. I like to have to bundle up. That's right. one of the things I like. And when I was in Philly, it was like I kept taking my coat off and putting my coat back on. I'm like, it's January. Yeah. You know, it was just really funny. But that's okay. I survived. <laughs> I'm also reading a manual for cleaning women selected stories by Lucia Berlin. And this is, um, if you remember, one of my goals for 2020 was to start reading some of my short story collections, right? And not feeling like I had to treat them like a book and read them cover to cover. And Lucia Berlin is one of those authors that achieved great acclaim after her death. And she's also the author that I attribute to learning to love the short story because my dear friend Kim who's passed away 
handed me Lucia Berlin's book so long, 20 years ago, if not more, and said, you think you don't like short stories, read these. And she was right. So, um, and it's kind of funny. I think there's something that I have because of losing my friend Kim that I've I bought the Lucia Berlin books. There's another book of hers that came out also after her death, but it's almost like I couldn't read them. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. it was making me a little sad. But then this week I decided you're going to tackle that and you're going to enjoy them and you're going to think about Kim when you read them, you know, so that's what I've been doing. That's really beautiful. It's like a way of honoring somebody to read a book or books that they loved. Yeah. 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 So again, that was a manual for cleaning women selected stories by Lucia Berlin. Nice. Well, I'm also reading that biography of Harriet Beecher Stowe, which I mentioned last time, which is called Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Life by Joan D. Hedrick, who is actually a local author. I think she lived in Middletown. And she taught at, was it Trinity College? I don't remember. Yeah, Trinity College, Hartford. So I am enjoying it very much. And I'll mention it later on, too, when we're talking about Biblio Adventures. Very good. So what did you just read? Well, I'm really super happy to say that I read and enjoyed Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tukertuk. Great read. I, it was so quirky and thought-provoking. Yeah. I'm so glad you liked it because there's such a big animal theme and I wasn't sure how that was going to sit for you. Yeah, because I usually shy away from books with animals or small children, uh, but I... I enjoyed it. I guess I should have known the animal theme was there because the cover I have has two dogs on it. And there are a lot of different other animals mentioned. And some of it is really fun. Yeah. About the animals and what's going on. And we're not going to keep talking about it because just to remind you, we have our read along coming up next month or this month. It's February 1st as we're sitting here recording. Yes. And it's actually going to be episode 96. So our next episode. So if you have any questions, comments, or if you want to get it read before we talk about it, We'll be recording on February 14th. Yeah. So um, we've gotten some emails. We have a very active Goodreads page, which I'll note in the show notes. Feel free to jump on there. There's been a couple spoilers maybe, but um, I know Jenny from Reading Envy put, you know, she knows how to do the fancy Mm -hmm. thing where you can't see, read it unless you want to read it. It says spoiler and then you can open it up. But really, it's just been a conversation. Mm -hmm. So jump in there and let us know what you think. And I finished Recipe for a Perfect Wife by Karma Brown, which I talked about on the last episode that I and I said I was kind of struggling with it because it seemed very 1950s housewife. Right. But really what ends up happening is it's, you know, it goes back and forth in time, 50s to current day, and it revolves around this house in the suburbs that these two women in these different eras end up living in. But really it's about women taking control of their lives and in the 50s it was kind of taking control of your life when you didn't have much power as a woman in the current day it was kind of someone who felt like she had lost her power because she worked in the advertising industry and lost her job because she had a version of a me too moment Mm. 
and ended up um, moving out to the suburbs. And then her husband wanted to start a family and she wasn't ready to start a family. And there was a lot of kind of not being truthful with each other, which never leads to good things. (laughs) But also um, intertwined with it with these recipes that she found uh, a recipe book in the basement of this house in current day. So there was cooking in it, which I enjoyed. So I ended up really enjoying it and um, being a little bit surprised by that. And it was a fun read because I had finished the Dear Edward before that. That was about the plane crash and things like that. So. It was nice to not be in such darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I did read another book. I finished uh, the memoir by Catherine Keith that's coming out on Tuesday, the 4th of February, Epic Solitude, A Story of Survival and a Quest for Meaning in the Far North. It was really good. I really enjoyed it and I highly recommend it for people who like adventure stories, true life adventure stories. It is also a story about healing and how Catherine finds healing in the far north of Alaska. She lives uh, above the Arctic Circle, in the Arctic Circle. I'm not sure how to phrase that. I've heard it said both ways. She is a young woman who loves nature. She reads Arctic Daughter when she was 10 years old, and her dad was into camping and stuff, so she really had this great love of nature from a young age. And she marries young and starts having these horrific nightmares of abuse that completely spiral her. She ends up divorcing and finding refuge still in nature. She hikes the Pacific Crest Trail and and does other things. And finally, she fulfills her dream of going to Alaska. She buys a a used ice cream truck, (laughs) makes that her home and heads north. And, you know, I said in my review, I did write a review on my blog of it, that she's not a trust fund kid. You know, it's not like she's just, you know, willy nilly going up there because she wants to. She takes odd jobs to pay for gas and food and whatnot. She did a variety of different jobs along the way and fell in love with dog sled racing, which helped her heal to be alone in nature with the dogs. And along the way, She comes to understand that naive optimism can be deadly Mm. when you live in an extreme environment. And she has some horrific things happen there. Mm. Uh, So it's, it's kind of an interesting parallel that she's going to northern Alaska and she's finding healing there in nature. But at the same time, these horrific things are happening because of the extreme conditions Um, The book overall, like I mentioned before in a past episode, the first part was hard for me because she is talking about her emotional struggle, some of the physical harm she was doing to herself. So I had to put it down for a couple days, but I'm really glad I picked it back up because once she starts writing about her heading up to Alaska, it really took off for me. I really recommend it. That sounds fun. It's her first book. One of my criticisms and this is just a minor one, is that it could have used a little bit uh, heavier editing, I think, because sometimes the chronology is a bit questionable, like when did this happen, mm. uh, that kind of thing, because it goes back and forth in time between her writing about different sled races she's been on and other life events. And I should say, too, like this is the endurance sled races, like the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest that are days long and it is almost like surviving those races is the point of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though there is purse money involved. Great story. Really enjoyed it. Again, that's Epic Solitude by Catherine Keith. Nice. I finished Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. This was such a good book. 
Oh my gosh. As someone said somewhere on some version of social media, the hype was real for this one. So this is the book that Michael Kindness, when we were at Book Expo, said, run as fast as you can to get an advanced reader's copy. And we couldn't. Mm -hmm. Neither of us could find it. So it's about a young woman who is a nanny for a wealthy white family in Philadelphia. And she's African American. And the opening scene of the book is she's been called to pick up the little girl, I think she's about three years old that she's in charge of, because something is happening in in evening time. So she had been off duty and something's happening. The mother calls her to ask her to come pick up the child and take her out of the home for a little bit. So she takes her to the local supermarket which is one of the little trips they do together, you know, during the day. So they have their things that they like to do, like let's smell the teas and let's look at the candies and stuff. So they're going about their way doing that. But she had, when she was called, she had been out with her friends as, you know, 20 year olds do. They go out to bars and have a good time on an evening, you know, weekend evening. So she wasn't dressed looking like a nanny per se. And she's got this little girl on her hip and some another woman that's shopping at the store sees her and reports her to a guard and says something seems amiss here to me so that's the opening scene of the book and then someone else that's shopping starts videoing the guard having an altercation with this young woman about who is this child that you're with and starting to ask her questions that are inappropriate so she ends up calling the father and saying, you know, says to the guard, you're going to be really embarrassed, but you're going to feel okay, because it's an older white man's going to come pick up this kid. And then you're going to feel like everything's okay in the world. And the young man who's filming it on his phone says, you know, I think you should report this and make a big deal of this. And the woman's response, the nanny's response is that will change my life completely. You know, I, I don't want to do that. That's not worth it to me. Mm-hmm. So right away from the start, you see that this is taking a different position, you know, you're seeing it from all sorts of vantage points. Like here is this 20 something year old white kid who's filming it who thinks I'm going to do the world a favor by showing the injustice. But who are the people you're filming? And what happens to them when they're outed for a situation that they've faced? So you've got a cast of characters in this book, you've got the mother, who has made a living being an Instagram influencer. Wow. And she has recently, she and her husband, who's um, on television, have recently relocated from New York City to Philadelphia. So Philadelphia is really a character in the book as well. You've got the young woman who's um, kind of trying to find her way, as young 20-year-olds are, and not feeling like her life is going in the direction that people expected it to go but has this lovely relationship with the little girl she's taking care of and her mother doesn't necessarily take time for the little girl and the nanny can see that and is concerned about what the future will be for her so I thought the relationship that the nanny and the little girl had was so beautifully drawn and one thing that Kylie Reed does incredibly well is dialogue There's so much different dialogue in this book. There's the dialogue between the nanny and her 20-year-old friends. There's the dialogue she has with the mother, the dialogue she has with the baby. It's a really well-done book. And it also really forces you to look at racism and how we all, you know, enter relationships with our own implicit bias. And I thought Kylie Reed did a fantastic job of that and forced me to look at my own and to really um, 
try to understand even as I was reading the book, how would I handle these situations and what's right and what's wrong? Because the mother ends up really stepping out of line and doing some things that are really unconscionable. Mm. And that's the tease I'm going to give because I don't want to ruin anything. I mean, what I told you about the opening scene is really just the very beginning chapter. How bizarre because, you know, seeing a a black woman and a white baby sniffing fruits. Like, yeah. really? Yeah. Well, it was that whole thing about, well, she was dressed inappropriately, mm. you know, and what does that mean? And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, she tackles so many different things. And apparently Kylie Reed was a nanny at some point in her life. And so I think she has very good perspective on what that relationship can look like. That's Although funny. she has been, it's, she, I, I have not had the opportunity to see her, but I've, read an interview where she said this is not an experience she ever had you know Mm -hmm. but she did have the experience of being a nanny so now is this her first novel yes yeah i highly recommend it such a fun age kylie reed i'm gonna check that out because i loved i love good dialogue yes i i just thought she was brilliant at that it was very real did you read anything else no well i read the two peter guy books i read lighthouse road and wintering I wasn't planning to reread Lighthouse Road. I'm not a rereader, as everyone knows. Yeah. But I started to flip through it because I, knowing that it was a trilogy that followed the family, I thought, I don't really remember what happened in this book. Mm-hmm. And as I read it, I did start to remember. It's about a young woman, Thea, who comes on a ship from Scandinavia to come live with her aunt and uncle in the uppermost cold parts of Minnesota back in the 1800s, 18, I think it was 1896. And when upon her arrival learns that her aunt has committed suicide and her uncle is kind of insane and hard to live with. So she ends up being taken in by another family and then sadly is raped. So trigger warning, there is a rape scene and has a baby. And then she passes away. And so it's about her son, Ode, being raised by Hosea and Rebecca, who have another whole backstory, which I don't really want to ruin. So uh, then it, it has to do with, um, you know, his understanding of what happened to his mother and these other people in his life and Ode ends up falling in love with Rebecca. So it's definitely a love story, but it's also a fishing story. Cool. So if you love boats and you love water and fishing, you will love this book. And Peter Guy is a fantastic writer. I really enjoyed it. And then Wintering, his next book, takes up later, again, going back and forth in time. And it's Ode's and Rebecca's son, Harry. And then, wait, did I get this right? Harry's son, Gus Gustav's family. And then the woman who ends up following in love with Harry. I did not say that very clearly. <laughs> it's it's a very epic family tale. It's very complicated. By the time you get to Northernmost, which is the third book that I'm reading now, there is actually a family tree in the front, which is very no, helpful. <laughs> I didn't feel like I needed it in the first and second book. But this the third book, you're definitely like, okay, there's way too many levels and layers of odes. I mean, ides now. I can't do it. And there's two odes, which is why I just said that. Anyway... I did listen to a lot of wintering. I had to do some driving and I didn't, I was sad to have to put the book down. So I bought it on Audible and it's a great audiobook as well. So I can't speak to Northernmost because I'm reading that as an arc. So there's no audio yet that I am aware of. So 
Boy, that was complicated, just like the family. And when does Northernmost come out? That comes out April 14th. Okay, great. I highly recommend you start with The Lighthouse Road. Interestingly, Lighthouse Road is also just referred to in all the books, not just like the backstory of those characters, but the road itself is a character in the book. So Very cool. They are standalone books, but since I've read them almost like one book straight through, I can't really speak to what the experience would be to read them as standalones, mm-hmm. but I highly recommend you just start with the first. So it's Lighthouse Road, Wintering is the second, which and both of those are out now, and then Northernmost, which comes out April 14th. It is the family historical fiction saga. about the Eyed family, a very much a saga, yeah, yes, and the characters good. around them, nice. yeah. One of my favorite camping trips ever was up in northern Minnesota. Yeah. It wasn't in winter, but no. <laughs> I really loved my time up there. Yeah. Well, it's funny because win- the book Wintering reminded me a little bit of Peter Heller's The River mm-hmm. because there's definitely a canoe trip gone awry and it's cold and they're hungry and freezing and you know, so which is not what happened in the river, but there was a lot of just like, you know, water tension on a a canoe in the river so it's also very much a father-son story so um which is not something you see that much in books i think wintering especially excellent peter guy all right so biblio adventures we went on a couple joint jaunts we did so fun we saw each other so much actually the week before last that chris said when i was gone to philadelphia it felt like i was gone forever it did and she was (laughs) gone like you know less than 48 hours no it was literally 28 (laughs) hours i went one afternoon and came back the next so yeah but um we i think because we got to spend so much great time together yeah yeah the first biblio adventure we went on was to see matthew goodman at the Greater New Haven JCC. He was there to talk about his new book. Um, It's got a long title. Are you ready? It's The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and I can't read my writing. (laughs) Hold on. It's right here in front of me. The real book, The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. And he is also the author of 80 Days, which was the book about Nellie Bly. And um, and who was the other woman that traveled? Mm-hmm. They, they went around the world. Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's history-making race around the world. It was a great event. Like, he spoke so well and engagingly about the story about the city game, which I, I didn't know a thing about. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't even know the background about City College and what its purpose had started as and continues as. So it was really a great learning experience for me, but just such an engaging storyteller. Yeah, he's a great storyteller. He had some pictures, which was fun that we could see, you know, some of the actual characters that he was talking about. And he talks about his writing that he writes historical narrative nonfiction Right. Right. That's the way he he says it. Yeah. You'll hear we have an interview with Matthew at the end of this episode. So you'll hear more about this story in his writing. Yeah. Coming up later. Matthew goes down in history as being the second author 
that we've ever had in studio. In studio, exactly. But he's the first that got to use our new mics. Right. So it was very exciting <laughs> totally. for us. I'm not sure how exciting it was for him, but it was very <laughs> exciting for us. And one thing, too, I picked up this flyer at the JCC, and I'm not sure if this is just for Greater New Haven, but it's a program where you can sign up and your child can receive free Jewish books mailed to your home each month. And they have it for different age groups. It looks like books for children zero to eight years of age and then uh, eight and a half to 11. And if you're interested, the website is pjrway.org for this. And it's sponsored by JCC of Greater New Haven and the Jewish Federation of Greater New Haven. And hopefully this is, you know, other local, uh, your local JCC might have a similar program. Yeah, so I'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out. That's really cool. Yeah, and they had a library there, and it was closed, unfortunately, but we took a photo op right in front of it and peeked in the window and everything. Yeah, it's a really nice facility, as most JCCs are. I mean, it has fitness facilities, and they actually have a situation at the JCC of New Haven where you can rent space to do work, which I think is so cool. Yeah. And they have daycare, all sorts of things. Then we went to see Janine Cummins talk about her book, American Dirt, at yes. R.J. Julia in Madison. Yes, that was uh, last Wednesday. The yeah. book came out on Tuesday. We saw her Wednesday. Yeah, that's right. It came out on the 21st yes. of January. So Aunt Ellen hopped a train and came up and joined us, which was so fun. She did her own whirlwind trip that day because she came up and went back right after the event. Yeah, so. it was great to see her. Nice yeah. surprise. It was lovely. For those of you who don't remember, just to give you a little backstory, American Dirt is the book that when we went to Book Expo in May 2019, 2019, there was a huge banner with Janine Cummins' picture on it and the cover of American Dirt and a huge banner that welcomed you to Book Expo that said that this book was The Grapes of Wrath of Our Time, which was a blurb by Don Winslow. But not coming out until January. So a lot of hype around this book. A lot of hype. Yeah. And we did walk out with ARCs, as many people did that day um, or during Book Expo. It's become a very controversial book. Yes. Like unbelievably controversial. Yeah. So um, I think what really broke things out in terms of the controversy was when Oprah announced it as her next book club pick. It really upset a lot of people who had read the advanced reader copy that it wasn't it wasn't a helpful portrayal of people who are struggling at the border to get into the United States. And it exploded on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Twitter was the main place, I think, where a lot of the anger and frustration was coming out. And as Janine Cummins mentioned at RJ Julia, Somebody asked her how she was doing with this controversy. And she said, you know, and I'm not doing well, but, you know, this issue of representation and publishing has been a long-term problem that's been simmering for a long while. And, you know, as she wrote in her author note, she didn't know if she was the best person to tell this story, but it was a story that she felt compelled to tell. And again, it's fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a fictional story based on the research she did. So a lot of the argument is about what books get published, what books get heavily promoted, who has the right to tell what story. Right. And so there are people on both sides who are really angry and upset, people on both sides who are really hurt. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I realize as I'm sitting here saying both sides, that's just helping to maintain this dichotomy. And I don't know if it needs to be a dichotomy. I think that's part of the problem is that we think in terms of dichotomies. You know, we think in terms of black and white, citizen and non-citizen. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And, you know, I have to tell listeners that, you know, by the time that Chris and Ellen and I were having supper the night we were going to see Janine Cummins, I was really upset. And I've like, I literally have been having trouble sleeping over this. It's really, I, I feel it really deeply. And part of it, you know, we should back back, back up by saying Chris has not read the book yet. Right. I have read the book. But I read the book and I talk about it on episode 88. If anyone wants to go back and just hear, you know, what I had to say just about reading the book before any of this controversy exploded. I had read Valeria Luiselli's book, Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, which really talked about the experience of kids that are crossing over into America and then are being held and being awaited deportation, essentially, and they're kind of instructed when they come. And if they get, you know, if their family pays for them to be transported over with a coyote, they actually are instructed that it's okay for you to get caught. Because once you get caught, they, you are kind of safe, I'm using air quotes, to then have them help you find the family members that you're looking for in the States. So they come with, you know, information in their pocket. But when they're awaiting deportation, there is a uh, survey that they have to fill out. And Valeria Luiselli's nonfiction work that I was just speaking about is about her experience helping as a translator with kids to answer those questions. And as they're answering those questions, you learn about a lot about why they were even trying to come here to the United States and their experience, which is n- not pretty usually. And so I was reading American Dirt with that as my backstory, kind Mm -hmm. of, of understanding this then fictionalized piece of work that Janine Cummins wrote. And she wrote a story. And I'd like to reiterate that. A novel. A novel. And it's about a mother and a son whose life unravels when their entire family is gunned down by the cartel. And from that point forward, it's a thriller. It's literally a thrill ride of them trying to get out of the country. Right. And, you know, I think in the the arguments that have come up, we've kind of seen like maybe four different categories of argument that have been happening. You know, the first is the publishing industry itself and its business model. The issue of gatekeepers, you know, who gets to tell what story and why. Uh, the, The whole pain issue of displaced anger. And then also the historical problem that we've seen before with books and other works of art in our country. And in our country in general, we have a history of immigration in our country that's very complicated. Yeah. And although it's not a new issue, which is what some, a lot of the authors who have been writing, who are native, culturally native is probably the better way to say it have been writing about these problems for many, many years. And I think there's some frustration that now because this thriller has been written by a white woman that, you know, why is it getting so much praise and so much attention and that it's filled with stereotypes, which is problematic, which are problematic. Right. And I think, you know, that goes to the publishing industry's business model of, you know, trying to find that one or two, three big books that are really going to bring in a lot of money for them for the year. And from the publisher's perspective, they say, you know, we look for these big books so that we can publish other books that we take a loss on. That's their claim. 
so what Janine Cummins, you know, she wrote this novel after years of research and at the event where we saw her at RJ Julia here in Madison, she said it was really spurred on too by the grief after losing her father. Right. So that really informed the relationship of the mother and the son for her. But, you know, there was a bidding war for this novel. Right. And what that means is that her she wrote the manuscript, her agent took the manuscript and then shops it, literally right. shops it around like an auction. And so publishers bid on it and she did get a $700,000 advance, which I talked to a couple authors and they're just like, yeah, controversy, controversy. And then when you say, and she got a $700,000 advance, their tone kind of changes. Right. Like, now I hate her. Right. You know, jokingly, <laughs> jokingly but there's truth right? in every joke. There is truth in every joke, for sure. So, but I think the thing is, is that the publisher really kind of overpromised and underdelivered on what this book was. And it set up people's expectations. And it set it up as being a novel that was going to, I don't know how to say this the best way, but that it was, you know, speaking for these people who are in this right. situation at the border. And I don't think Janine Cummins, at least from the talk where we saw her, that was not where she was coming from. As she said, she was trying to put a face on the brown masses. Which All right. a lot of people found to be very objectionable. And that's something she wrote in her author note at the end exactly, of the book. Exactly, right. One of the, probably one of the bigger reviews that's been shared is by Gerba, who wrote... A review that was supposed to be run in Ms. Magazine, and they decided not to run it, and she published it on a blog. So after Oprah's news broke, that post started getting shared everywhere and really contributed to a lot of the anger that people who haven't read the book felt about, here we go, another, quote, white woman misrepresenting another minority. Right. But the thing is, like, coming from different perspectives, Gerba wrote in her review, she's like, you know, here I am with my brown family, and I see their faces, and I hear their voices. And yes, that is her reality. But the reality for a lot of white Americans is all they know is what they see on TV. Right. And we all know how the TV presents things as masses. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they rarely get into, you know, the weeds of an issue because it's the news. It's a half hour, you know. Right. So... One of the reasons Oprah chose it, supposedly, is that she's thinking it's going to be a novel that a lot of people read who normally don't read about minority issues because it is a thriller. It's a page turner. And that maybe this could be a way to start having those conversations. And maybe it's a way for white people who don't think about this issue to have some compassion and empathy for specific characters and again, characters, it's fiction. Right. It's a story. One of the people at the event said, you know, how do you feel that, you know, you've written this fictional book, but you're having to justify it as if it's nonfiction. Right. Which I thought was a really good point. And, yeah. and Janine said that, yeah, it's very difficult. And not only that, she's having to really defend herself as a human being, Yeah, which is really difficult. You know, and really, there's no winner in that argument, right. you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, historically, I think we've also just had a really hard time in this country, you know, going back to the days of Native Americans, right? And we have that burden. And a lot of people are asking, you know, Janine Cummins, I really think where a lot of the vitriol stems from is her author's note, mm -hmm. where she uses the term we and she refers to 
you know, like she, when you use the term we, you're including other people and who is the we, you right. know, and I realize I do that. I talk about my country and I use the term we, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there's a lot of pain in our country and a lot of unresolved tension. And I came across a James Baldwin quote, because words matter to me. And that's why I think this seeing all this argument has been really difficult to see how vitriolic people are to each other when it comes to this. And one of the things that James Baldwin wrote many years ago is, now I understand why people hold on to their hate so stubbornly, because once they let it go, there's nothing but pain. And when I read Gerba's review, or what did you say? Some people people have been calling it just a takedown that it's not really a review, because she gets way uh, she gets away from the book too much okay yeah and I think to me it means that she has pain there Mm -hmm. there's pain residing there and pain for her family or pain for her people you know Mm -hmm. and I I feel for her I totally feel for her with that and I think Janine Cummins book isn't you know really the end of that discussion it's really just the beginning and my hope is that that's what can happen with all of this vitriol is that, you know, Oprah's got a big, huge platform, you know, they're they have canceled Janine Cummins book tour, her Flatiron has canceled the book tour. And they said they're going to be hosting town hall meetings. I hope they're really good. And I hope they get people from all sides of this issue to participate in them. Right. And they canceled it because there were death threats. There were threats against, I, I guess, booksellers were reporting that I these are just things that I've heard. You know, this is still a developing story in many ways, um, but that there were death threats. And Kerba, the woman who wrote the review that we were just talking about, has also received death threats, she said. So this is what we've come to in America. You know, I used to really value social media as a place to discuss things. And it has just turned into a big us and them situation where we're just yelling at each other. We're not hearing. We're not listening. We don't trust the, quote, other side. And I just think it's that dichotomy of always looking at things as us and them that is really harmful. But I completely understand it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely do because I had my own experience as a young gay person dealing with a lot of rejection and hatred by heterosexual people. Right. But, you know, I was able to turn my view around by talking with people because I found some people who were straight but compassionate. Yeah. And that made a huge difference. So, you know, let's hope that on a national level, we can have a conversation that then can somehow get down to the local level where we can have face-to-face conversations because I think that's where things really happen. I agree. And where change can really happen in people's lives and attitudes. Because yeah. it's a real thing. I mean, it's... it. It might be displaced anger, but for a very good reason. Absolutely. You know, historically, the victor writes history. And in America so far, it's been the white people who are the victors who have um, really done a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. But then there's the issue. You wanted to read a piece um, about Harriet Beecher Stowe, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm also reading uh, this biography of Stowe by Joan Hendrick or head wreck, I should say. Um, and so this is a paragraph that really resonated with me as this story with American dirt has been breaking. Here it is. Stowe's very success has made it difficult to evaluate her role in our cultural history. 
In a life that spanned all but 15 years of the 19th century, Stowe spoke to a nation deeply divided by race, sex, region, and class. Speaking to the masses meant negotiating diverse and even contradictory cultures. How successfully she accomplished this, and with what cost to various subcultures, continues to be a subject of fierce debate. In her time, Southern readers objected to her portrayal of slavery in Uncle Tom's Cabin. In our time, African Americans have objected to Stowe's racial stereotypes. To engage her life is to engage the plurality and contradiction of American culture. And, you know, I just think that's it. Like, we're talking about a story that's on a national stage. And, again, that's just going to raise people's hackles. But I think by having those national-level conversations, it does spark change. Yeah. You know, the whole Abraham Lincoln thing of her meet, of him meeting Stowe and saying, so you're the little lady who started this great war. Like, obviously, for a long, long time, slavery was being debated and, you know, even the drafters of the Constitution, I mean, that was a big argument during the drafting of it. Right. Um, so immigration is a different issue, but it's a very, very important issue in our time. And it's been simmering for a long time. It has. And I think things weren't great under any administration. But this new administration, they're doing more obvious heinous things like putting children and people in cages right in the united states of america who would ever thought it would come to that again it's we're living in a very tenuous time i mean i was just in philadelphia with my son and right three doors down from where he lives there was a tavern an open restaurant with all the windows had been broken and had boards on them and he looked at me and he said yeah apparently a neo-nazi group meets here and so people were very angry and threw rocks at the windows. This is in Philadelphia in 2020. So it's a it's a tricky time. We're getting a little off subject. Yeah, but, it is a tricky time. But, but you, know, you know, yeah, um, I feel this situation very deeply. And I'm hopeful that, you know, with Oprah's platform, I know that there was a letter written by a large segment, uh, like 80 authors or something. I think it's signed, over 100 now. Okay, signed, signed it to say, please, we implore you not to have this be your book. I have mixed feelings about that. And I feel like if she can really, you know, if the if the publishing industry can or the publisher Flatiron can really do these town hall meetings. And if Oprah has a platform where she can get people from all sides to be on a stage and talk about this, I'm actually feeling hopeful that maybe some positive change can be made or come from this. You know, I agree. I watched the movie American Factory, which is a documentary that's up for an Academy Award. And it's been purchased by Barack and Michelle Obama's uh, new company called Higher Ground. And I watched an interview that they had with the filmmakers because the film the film is about a factory in my old stomping grounds, Dayton, Ohio, Marine, Ohio. It used to be a GM plant and a, it closed years ago and a Chinese company came in to a glass manufacturing company and part of the employees were Chinese and part were American. And it's been a real culture clash to figure out how they can all work together. And when the filmmakers asked Barack and Michelle why they chose their story, Barack said, we want people to be able to get outside of themselves, experience and understand the lives of someone else. If we can do that through storytelling, we can experience solidarity. I don't think I can say anything else after that, right. except to remind people, this is a story that she told, 
And I hope that it opens up conversation that needs to be had. I do too. You know, one of the things with that letter that the authors wrote, they said, you know, we're not part of cancel culture. But the thing is, you can't control once you start a Twitter campaign, like you can't control that. And obviously, it has become part of cancel culture, Mm -hmm. you know, so once you unleash forces, you have to deal with what comes. And that's what I hope that people really deal with what is being raised by this issue. And that the casualty is not creativity and imagination when it comes to writing novels. I agree. What more so can we say? We can't say more except, you know, the story of what's happening with this book continues. And we'll be standing by and watching and listening and learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So other Biblio adventures, I had a couple that were fun. I got to connect with our buddy John Valeri, our mystery man. We had uh, some book browsing up at uh, the Wesleyan RJ in Middletown, Connecticut, and then went out to dinner. I picked up two books when I was there. Let me reach over and get them. Um, So they're books I'm familiar with. I checked both of them out of the library in the past. They're both by Carmen Maria Mercado. The first one is Her Body and Other Parties, which is her collection of short stories, which I did read around in when I had the library book last year. Had to return it. The other book is her new memoir called In the Dream House. This just came out. Mm -hmm. um, And I did have the library copy, but I had to return it. I couldn't renew it. And I knew that it was a book. It's going to be a book that I'm probably going to take a long time reading because it is about abusive relationships she was in. And uh, I think it's going to be a very important book. And I really want to read it, but I'm going to want to take my time. So I bought those two when I was on my Biblio adventure. Excellent. And I had a whirlwind biblio adventure in Philly. And ironically, she is from Philly. So I saw her on the local author shelves there in the many bookstores that my son was kind enough to to take me to. We were very quick, though. We stopped in Shakespeare and Company, which is a really beautiful little store. They have an espresso book printing machine, which I hadn't, I don't think there are many in the country, but these are those machines where they can print books on demand. Mm -hmm. Not every book, obviously, there are certain books that they can print. So that was kind of cool to see. And then we happened upon, we were just walking in through a neighborhood, the Rosenbach which is a, a library in a, this beautiful old building, a, a very rare of rare books, something like 400,000 books. It's a museum, which we didn't get to go into. We just stepped into the door and I got a pamphlet for my next visit. But interestingly, they had a relationship with Maurice Sendak. He was on the board and very involved. And so his name popped up and I asked them, like, you know, what does he have to do with this place? Because he's the author of Where the Wild Things yeah. Are and oh, some of those other. My favorite when I was a little kid. Yes, love that. I love that book. I also went to the Penn Bookstore, which is, you know, the bookstore on campus. It's a big Barnes and Noble. And then I went to the Penn Book Center, which is just down the street, an indie bookstore, really great bookstore. One of those bookstores, you know, that's near a university. So they have lots of plays and poetry and just, you know, broader sections than some independent bookstores that aren't located, you know. And then I went to the Last Word Bookshop, which is a used bookstore really close to Penn's campus. And I had, Jacob was like, your heart's racing a little bit, isn't it? I was like, it is, because they had stacks of books. I mean, 
stacks of books all over that store. It kind of freaked me out. When I'm going to used bookstores these days, I'm always looking for a copy of Lucia Berlin's book, So Long. I don't own a copy and it's kind of hard to come by, the one with the old cover. And so I went back to the bees and I didn't see it. And I thought on a whim, I'll ask the guy, you know, some used bookstores, they just look at you cross-eyed when you want to know. I mean, look, they've got stacks of books, but he actually had everything in the computer. And he said, no, we don't have a copy of that. We do see it sometimes. So, so there was definitely, it was ordered chaos. Let's just say that's great. (laughs) And then I was on this, I walked a portion of the city by myself and I came across a store. It was too early in the morning, so it wasn't open, but it just said books. It was hilarious. Like there was a flag out front that said books. There were all these books in the store, but I have no idea what the store's name was. Mm. So I need to do some research, which I haven't had time to do, because as I said, I got off the train (laughs) at 11 o'clock last night. So it was quite a whirlwind in there. And we had some listeners or some, I shouldn't say they're necessarily listeners, but people on Instagram when I posted that I was on the train gave me lists of bookstores to go to. That's great. So I have definitely have reason to go back to see Jacob, of course, <laughs> and, and to hit the multitude of bookstores I missed. So I, I got I didn't do too bad for 24 Not hours. Not at all. Yeah. That's excellent. Very cool. <laughs> well, I had a couch biblio adventure. Um, my friend Jennifer came over and we watched Dracula the 1931 Bella Lugosi version. She had never seen the movie. She hadn't read Dracula, but she is now reading Dracula. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I can't, you know, Jennifer, if you're reading or if you're listening, no pressure to finish it. But um, I always love turning people on to that novel because it is so near and dear to my heart. Yeah. And I forgot too, because I mentioned in the last episode that I watched the new Netflix BBC adaptation of Dracula the three-part first season and you know they every adaptation of Dracula puts its own spin on things they drop some characters they combine other characters and I forgot that this the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula did the same thing like in the beginning it's supposed to be Jonathan Harker who's the young lawyer traveling to Dracula's castle and in the movie version they made it uh, into Renfield who is going because he's the guy who is in the quote crazy house insane asylum who dracula makes his slave okay so uh yeah so that was a change and i was like well i didn't remember that because it's been a while since i've watched the yeah the movie so that was a really fun couch adventure you know i'm i'm feeling couch adventures this winter it's nice. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we just said that we're not having that big of a winter, but that's part of what I like about winter is the excuse to sit on my couch. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Curl up. Yeah. Um, the other biblio adventure I went on was to Bank Square Books up in Mystic for Alyssa Sweet's going away party. Yeah. She's the events manager there. She'd been there for five years, I believe. And um, so she... she resigned and is moving on to get back into writing and freelance editing. And we're going to miss her. Yeah, for sure. She's been a great friend that we've made uh, through our years of podcasting. And I got to meet Anastasia, who is her replacement. Excellent. Yeah. And also Annie Philbrick, who's the owner of Bank Square Books and the Savoy Bookstore. So it was great. Uh, wonderful to, to meet everybody and chat and catch up with Alyssa. And, yeah. And I was sorry I had to miss that. I was supposed to go, but... Instead, saw this little window to get down to Philly. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, a f- you know, for the most part, really great Biblio adventures. But this American Dirt controversy has yeah. really taken a lot of energy. I think I, I did a lot of reading and listening. Yeah. And there have been some, you know, maybe what I'll do is do some links in the show notes because there are some really good reviews out there. And there was a Latino USA, which is an NPR program, did a really great report where she really interviewed people from all sides of the story. So I'll put that link in the show notes because I thought that was brilliantly done. It really was. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So upcoming jaunts. We have a joint jaunt, hopefully, up to Northshire Books. Yes, yes. We're hoping to see, um, it's a mystery book launch with, is it Simone St. James, I think is her name. And she'll be in conversation with Jennifer McMahon about Simone's new book, The Sundown Motel. Yeah, I'm so excited that uh, I have an advanced reader copy. I'm going to be starting that. Um, I read her her last book, was, which was the, oh my gosh, I can't remember, something about the Broken Girls. Mm. It was really good. The Broken Girls. Oh, okay. Yeah, so The Broken Girls. Really good. I, I enjoyed that very much. Um, and so this new novel about the hotels, it's about... it's in two time periods from what I understand. Um, It's mainly about a young girl or a young woman, I should say, whose aunt had disappeared from this hotel back in the eighties. And she's always been a bit obsessed about her aunt's disappearance. So the hotel I believe is abandoned maybe now and it's haunted. So, and this is fiction. This is fiction. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so real. It's creepy. <laughs> and Jennifer McMahon, um, she's written several novels. I've only read one of hers, which was her most recent called The Invited. The Invited, right? Which is about this couple in Vermont who build a haunted house. Right. So, I'm really yeah, looking forward to this. It's going to be a great event. conversation. Yeah. And reminder that, that The Invited was one of Chris's top reads of 2019. Yeah. So, you're going to be fangirling over Jennifer McMahon. I so. totally will be. Yeah. yeah. So, I might be. An embarrassment, Emily. Uh, I'll keep you under control. <laughs> so that's February 18th at the Northshire Bookstore in Manchester, Vermont. If you are listening to this and can make it, that'd be great. We'd love to meet you. Yes, we would. So, what about upcoming reads? Well, I have one that I posted about on Instagram. Actually, I didn't post about the book, I posted about an empty envelope I received from All Amazon. Right. Because I ordered this book from Amazon. Now, I rarely order books from Amazon. I usually do my best to go into bookstores and buy them. Um, But in December, I found myself in the emergency room with intestinal pain that turned out to be diverticulitis, which I was like, oh, man, I've heard of this. I know friends who've had it. I didn't know it hurt so much. (laughs) So as I was sitting there waiting... um, you know, in the ER, as one does after the diagnosis, I started looking for books because that's what I do anytime I have a crisis or a question. Mm -hmm. And I found this book that was coming out in January. So I thought I'm ordering it now because one, I know I'll forget. And two, I know when I feel better, I'm not gonna be as vigilant or diligent on taking care of my body in this new way now that I know I have this condition, right? Right. So the book is from the Mayo Clinic. It's the Mayo Clinic on Digestive Health, How to Prevent and Treat Common Stomach and Gut Problems. It's the fourth edition, Wow. which I thought was a good sign. And it's by Sahil Kanana. I ordered it right away and it came last week in an empty, or it didn't come last week. (laughs) 
an empty envelope yeah. came. So, you know, I put that on Instagram and my friend Matt from Chicago was like, hey, just reach out to Amazon on chat because that had happened to him before. And, you know, they'll take care of you. And I did that and they took care of it. And the book mm -hmm. arrived within a couple of days. Oh, good. So that is one of my upcoming reads. Excellent. I have one that I received from Celadon because I requested it. It's called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters, which seemed kind of relevant with this conversation happening around American Dirt. And um, it's written by a woman who is a contributor to the New York Times, Kate Murphy. And she just talks about how, I mean, I haven't started it. It's an upcoming read. But in the paperwork that came with the book, it says, that she's talking about the worldwide epidemic of not listening and exposing both its profound detriment to our culture and explaining how we can reverse the trend. And that's part of what appealed to me about it is, you know, maybe she's going to give us some insight into what we can do about this. Because I do think that part of the, not to keep talking about the American dirt controversy, but I do think that social media is not helping in these situations because people can just spew vitriol and then literally you're not even turning and walking away you're just putting your phone down right you know? well so, I, you know i do have yeah. to say that while i was following the american dirt controversy on wednesday i noticed a lot of people had already deleted the tweets mm -hmm. that were comments to other people's tweets and i think a lot of people are so angry in that moment and then they stop and they think of what they said mm -hmm. and then they go and delete it because they realize Maybe they were a little too harsh. You know, they just had time to think about it and thought, well, that's really not helping this situation. Or maybe you weren't fully informed. I right. mean, that happened too. You know, this, the more information comes out and then you understand things in a different light. Right. So, yeah. Or you stick by what you felt like Sandra Cicernos. You know, yeah. she has stood by her enjoyment of the novel and saying that she thinks it's going to be a very helpful novel and that it's going to be read by more people who read, quote, airplane trash, I think is what she called it, or airport <laughs> trash, which I was like, wow. But, you know, those kind of, you know, thrillers, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I love Page thrillers. Page turners is yeah. what they're called. People talk about that these are throwaway novels, but they're only throwaway novels because they're so entertaining yeah. that you just consume it and it's gone. Yeah. But that's, that's it's hard to write a good one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. everybody so next up is our interview with Matthew Goodman enjoy hi everyone we are so excited to have with us in person today author Matthew Goodman Chris and I realized this morning the only other author we've ever had in the studio aka my living room <laughs> is Chris's wife Laura right Laura Toma. <laughs> yeah she was here for a Two times, I think. Yeah. 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 So we're excited to have Matthew here. I didn't know that marriage was a uh, requirement <laughs> for attending a session in the studio. I will say that it's the most beautiful view I've ever had in a recording studio. Well, thank you. It is. It's fun. We enjoy uh, recording here. And a lot of recording studios, I guess, are surrounded with foam and you're in just a booth with a right. door that closes. So this is definitely yeah. different than that. <laughs> One of the most impressive things I have to say about Matthew so far is that he found yes. my house, which isn't easy. <laughs> Thank God for GPS. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just a little background on how I know Matthew. Matthew is married to somebody that I grew up with in Yellow Springs, Ohio, who I haven't seen in years, yes. actually. 
But he started to come to Yellow Springs as a, you just call it faculty, right? Visiting I, faculty? I, or? I think just, yeah, faculty, I think, yeah. was the title. Nonfiction faculty. For Antioch Writers Workshop. And ended up staying in the apartment owned by Suzanne Clauser. Mm, who's great a, writer. Yeah, fantastic writer in her own right, who happened to live next door to me. Mm. So we ran into each other, I think, one day walking down On the, the street, street. Yep. yeah, and got to know each other. And then um, as Matthew returned for other writers' workshops, we w- would have dinner together sometimes because we also have a mutual friend, author Shuli Kaywood. Another great writer. Yes. So many great writers among us. I know, we're so lucky. <laughs> Who's been on our podcast twice as well, I believe, yes, Shirley. Yeah. and will be soon for her new short story collection. She's fantastic. Yes. Boy, if we had planned this better, we could have had you on together. I wish. <laughs> All right. I'll come, I'll, come, I'll come in next time. Okay, Thanks good. Here. So on episode 33, which was way back in the day of November of 2017, which seems like a lifetime ago, Chris read a book called 10 Days in a Madhouse by oh. Nellie Bly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great, stirring read. It was written in the late 19th century. Yep. And fr- I found a free copy, you know, on uh, that I downloaded. Mm-hmm. And I w- was talking about it, and Emily said, oh, my gosh, I know a guy who just wrote a book <laughs> about her. That was doing really well. And I reached out to Matthew yes. about this book, which is called 80 Days... Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's History Making Race Around the World. We talked about having him on. Mm -hmm. It took a couple years to make that happen. (laughs) It was so long ago that I had totally forgotten. But but the good news is, since that time, he's written another book called The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. This one's getting incredible praise. It was recently written up in the New York Times. And we thought maybe you could start by just giving us a brief summary of what it's about. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm delighted to be here with you folks. Um, I love your podcast. The City Game tells the story, I should say it's nonfiction, it's history. And we can talk more about this. It's what I call narrative history. It's all true. Every bit of it is true, just like any history book, but it's told in a novelistic way so that you might pick up any particular page of the book and you don't necessarily know at first glance, is this fiction or is this nonfiction? But it tells the story of the 1949-50 City College Beavers basketball team, which was a team composed entirely of what at the time were called minority players, uh, 11 Jewish players, four African-American players. This is at a time, of course, when baseball had just been integrated by Jackie Robinson, when the NBA had no black players in it. This was an all uh, Jewish and black team, and they achieved something that had never been done before or since which is to win both of the postseason basketball tournaments, the NIT and the NCAA, in the same year. They were huge heroes in New York. They were beloved in New York, and by actually Jewish and African-American fans all across the country. And then a year later, uh, they were coming back from a game, and they pulled into New York, and they were met at the station by detectives and were arrested for conspiring with gamblers to shave points. And they went literally overnight, from being heroes to villains, and lived in the shadow of that scandal for the rest of their lives. But as I've discovered over the course of doing this book, the story is way more complicated than we had been led to believe. And these young men are really extraordinarily complicated, rich, 
characters. Um, and it's been really a great pleasure for me to be able to get to know them and the story and to tell it. We were at an event last night. We had a joint jaunt, Biblio yeah. Adventure. So, um. so pleased to be the focus of a joint jaunt <laughs> and a Biblio Adventure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we saw Matthew last night at the uh, Greater New Haven JCC. And one of the really surprising things for me about your talk was how popular college basketball was yeah. back in the day. I know it's still very popular, but just the same issues going on with so many people making money off yeah. of college sports teams and the players make nothing. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I know. It was so amazing. You know, I mean, I'm writing a book about stuff that happened like 70 years ago. But it's still so relevant to today. You know, there were so many overtones of things that are going on today. And I didn't talk about that explicitly in the book because I wanted really to remain in the past and not jolt the reader out of that to talk about the current situation. But it's pretty clear, you know. And you had a situation then where there was just a huge amount of money flowing through the game and a huge amount of gambling money flowing through the game, a tremendous amount of betting, bookmaking, and so forth. And sort of everybody was getting rich except for the players who were not allowed to touch any of this money. And that situation is far worse today than it was then. There's way more money in the game now than there was then. And yet the players are still not allowed to partake of any of this money, even though it's their talents that's causing the whole thing. You know, nobody was going to the games to watch the coach. You know, nobody right. was going to the yeah. game to watch the referee or the sports writers. They were there to watch the players. If it weren't for the players, none of it would happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking about this last night. You know, you have a situation that's almost unique, perhaps is unique in American society, where you have this group of young, talented players most of them from poor families, who are able by their own talents to create enormous profits for other people and yet are not allowed themselves to touch any of that. And as long as you have that kind of a situation, you're always going to have uh, temptation for bribery. And and that's what happened then, and it's still happening happening today. Yeah. Well, and the whole shaving points issue, too, for those of you who are not sports fans, it's not throwing a game completely. It's just shaving off some points to right. make the spread for those types of gambling bets. Right. I mean, I should say, and I, I think it's fair to say that, and in fact, you mentioned uh, the New York Times review, which what was so nice about it was that I think the first sentence of, of the review said something like, you know, this is a, they did use the word gem. Uh, this gem, <laughs> you know, is a, is, a, is a book for people who don't even care about sports, yeah. you know. My publicist went crazy when, when, <laughs> when she read that. But, you know, it happens to be about basketball, but it's not really about basketball. You know, in the same way, not to compare myself to this, but that Seabiscuit is not really about horse racing. You know, this is a book about young people, about choices, about bad choices, about the way that later lives are colored by choices that you make when you're young. Uh, you know, it's about corruption. It's about the way that cities work. It's about race. It's about education, you know, New York. Uh, it's about a lot of things. But, uh, you know, you mentioned point shaving. And, yes, they were not trying to lose games. They, were try they would not have done it for that. Uh, you know, they have these kind of deeply ingrained competitive instincts that would have just 
recoiled at the idea of intentionally losing a game. They were just trying to win by fewer points so that if the point spread, which is the number of points that this consortium of bookmakers in Minneapolis said that they were favored to win by, if the point spread was nine, then they would win by eight or seven or six. And it was easier to do that because you can convince yourself, well, I'm not going to lose the game. I'm just going to change the score of the game. And who's even going to remember what the score of the game was next week anyway? And then, you know, I'll have $2,000 that I can give to my parents to pay off the mortgage or whatever. Right. Yeah. I, I could totally see that temptation. Sure. Because you're not throwing the whole game. Yeah. And Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I was trying to do in this book, you know, in the way that like a good novel is not laying out an argument, you know, for the reader ideally, you know, it's just kind of presenting a life and a character or a set of characters and presenting how this character thinks and how this character acts and the choices that this character makes and sort of invites the reader to compare herself, you know, in a sense, to interrogate her own life in comparison with this character and ask herself, would I have acted in that way if I were in that situation? And then you get to know yourself a little bit better, you know, as a result of that. And it's the same thing with this book, you know, that these players were treated in the press kind of as cliches, as simply bad guys, as immoral guys, as corrupt guys who were greedy and willing to sell out their fans for a few bucks. But as in, in point of fact, that wasn't what was going on at all. And they were very different in their motivations and they each had their own motivations and some of them were more enthusiastic about taking the money and some of them really resisted taking the money before they finally did and some of them did it because they felt they were entitled to it and some of them did it because they were poor and they wanted to help their parents out some of them did it simply because of peer pressure you know uh, one guy said he did it because I wanted the other guys to like me. Sure. You know, so um, it's complicated. It's yeah. complicated. And again, relating to today, you know, there are scandals that happen today in sports. And it's very easy from, you know, your couch, watching it on TV or reading the, the sports pages on at the kitchen table to say, oh, there's a bad guy without necessarily knowing what's going on. Maybe he is a bad guy and maybe he isn't. We don't know. But chances are there are complicated things going on in that person's life that we don't necessarily know about that may be motivating them. Right. And and you talk, too, about the huge network right. of gambling and corruption yeah. that surrounds yeah. the game right. back then and, and probably still today. Who knows? But back then, certainly, it was right. everywhere. Right. And, you know, multi-million dollar yes. business. No, that's the thing, you know, that there was this vast web of corruption that was going on that, you know, that was what I was trying to do was to provide a kind of context for the lives that these guys were growing up in. You know, they were growing up in immigrant ethnic communities in New York in which corruption was just a staple of life. You know, the cop on the corner was taking money from bookmakers. Everybody knew that. The local politicians were on the take. You know, everybody was on the take. And this had been going on for a long time, and they knew it. You know, players before them had been doing it. So uh, they kind of got caught up in a big system of corruption. You know, the book is called The City Game. It doesn't relate just to the type of game that was played at City College, but also the way that cities work, you know. And the, and the way that New York was working in that period of time, you know, there was a lot of what was called grease, you know, that kept the wheels yeah. of the city moving. So so that was there for sure. Yeah. So 
I wanted to mention also that Matthew, I mentioned the Nellie Bly book. Matthew also has a book called The Sun and the Moon, The Remarkable True Account of Hoaxers, Showmen, Dueling Journalists, and Lunar Man Bats in 19th Century New York. He also is a cookbook author. Yes. The book is called Jewish Food, The World at Table. All of your books have a tremendous amount of research involved in them. <laughs> yes. I'd love to know how you organize. I mean, I was just flipping through the notes mm. on both The City Game and 80 Days, and they're unbelievable. How do you keep it all organized? How do you approach your research? You know, I said last night, I just make it up. You know, it's, it's very easy to do if you, you know, this that's the fictional aspect. No, you're right. You know, with each book with each of the um, narrative history books they've all sort of worked out the same where that the amount of research time is just about equal to the amount of writing time so each book takes like five years to write uh, to complete and usually it's about two and a half years of research and then two and a half years of writing I don't start writing you know I don't start the first sentence of the book until I've put in at least a couple of years of research because I feel like I really need to know the world that I'm writing about and how do you even know what you're going to write until you've got it all in your head? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm trying to create as vivid a picture of the world that I'm writing about as I can. And the only way to do that is to have a vivid picture in my own head so I can put it down on the page. And, you know, the best responses that I ever get from readers are the people who say, oh, I really felt what it was like to be living in New York in 1835. You know, how were you able to do that? Well, it was because I kind of read everything that there was about New York in 1835. And I went back and I read the newspapers from that period. And I read, you know, uh, journals from that period and, and letters and um, looked at, well, they wouldn't have had photographs, but looked at drawings and maps and so forth. One of the things, by the way, for all the would-be historians out there, certainly narrative historians, that I have found are extremely useful that people don't necessarily think about is guidebooks, you know, like travel guidebooks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this was really helpful for 80 days because, you know, they're going around the world. But, you know, like, for instance, writing about New York in 1835, that was the period in which New York first became a kind of tourist destination for people from Europe to come over. And so you begin to see guidebooks being written for the first time. And guidebooks are amazing because they tell you what the great restaurants are in town, what the hotels are in town. They give, you know, walking tours. So they say, if you walk down Broadway, you'll see this building on the left. It looks like this, you know. And so you create in your mind this incredible picture of whatever you're writing about. You know, all of the habits of the quote-unquote locals, you know, when they, when they have dinner, what they like to eat, what they do for fun, because you're going to do that. You know, all of that stuff is, is, so guidebooks are incredibly useful because a historian is really kind of like a tourist, you know, in the sense that you're visiting a foreign place. It happens to be you're going back in time as opposed to going through space, but you are a visitor. So guidebooks were really helpful. And then the other thing that I invariably use are the newspapers of whatever time and place I'm writing about. But interestingly, the what I find to be most helpful for the kind of history that I do is not really the news stories in a newspaper, not the front section of a newspaper or the editorials, but the um, advertisements mm -hmm. in newspapers at that time, you know, because they tell you 
what you know if it's a more modern period you know what movies people are watching at the time what tv shows they're watching uh advertisements tell you what foods people are eating how much things cost how people are decorating their homes what people are doing for entertainment you know it's a whole picture of a society right it provides the cultural context absolutely yeah Yeah. so so you know my book my books are filled with these little details that i've gotten from advertisements you know people were shopping at s klein's you know uh, whatever it is you know i didn't make that up and i didn't just know that i've discovered that you know by reading like newspapers so yeah you know, I was surprised. I was reading a journal recently that was from like 1920 something and the gun advertisements in there. <laughs> you know, people think like yeah. our weapon culture is a, a newer thing, but there were so many advertisements for, for Absolutely. guns and whatnot. And, you know, because in a book like this, you know, you really can't be making stuff up. You know, the reader has to be confident that everything that you have in the book is true and def- defensible by you. So if if something is happening on a particular day and I want it to be rainy because that's going to make it a more dramatic scene, well, I can't just make it rainy if it wasn't actually rainy on that day or if I've got some great passage about rain that I want to write. You, know? <laughs> you have to know in the book about 1835, the newspapers didn't have weather reports, which are a good way to find out what the weather was on a particular day. And I didn't know what the weather was, and I was going crazy because I was describing this one week in August, and I really wanted to be able to say what the weather was. And I found a journal, after a long time of searching, a journal by a guy named Michael Foy, and the entry for this one day said, rained yesterday. And I was like, thank God, I finally know, you know, because now I can put it in the book, you know, and then you can cite that, you know, diary, Michael Foy, New York Historical (laughs) Society, you know. So why not do fiction you know so that you could have the relief so i'm lazy at heart you know i'll just make it up right. as i go along you know i mean because that is the you know historical fiction that kind right. of is the point you get a little bit of a skeleton absolutely then, you well know. you know i was trained as a fiction writer you know i went to graduate school vermont college uh i got an mfa in fiction writing so i love fiction mm-hmm. i love to read fiction um and i wrote a lot of fiction but really, I found was that from my own interests, I've always been really interested in history and really interested in uh, news and politics and so forth. You know, what I studied in college wasn't fiction writing. It was, it was history. And so for me, this kind of writing um, of narrative history combines my interests in the sense that I'm able to use the tools of the fiction writer that I picked up, you know, by learning how write fiction, you know, in terms of an understanding of character and understanding of narrative voice and narrative structure and so forth, but join that together with this kind of love for history and and research, you know. Even when I was writing fiction, I was doing way too much research, you know. I mean, to write a short story, I would read, you know, 12 books or whatever, you know. So this kind of gives me the license to do that. That's great. Now, you also teach writing. I have taught writing. You have taught writing. Mm -hmm. Did you teach nonfiction? I taught, yes, I taught nonfiction writing, creative nonfiction writing, yeah. Well, I taught for a long time at Vermont College, which is where I went to graduate school, but I taught in the undergraduate program for adults who are going back to school to get their BAs. It's a fantastic, fantastic program called the uh, uh, Adult Degree Program. And I taught all kinds of writing, whatever writing the student happened to be doing, whether it was personal essays or a novel or uh, a memoir, whatever, whatever it might be. 
Uh, but I stopped doing that a number of years ago. And so now I just sort of teach at writing conferences and so forth. And usually I teach what's called CNF, creative nonfiction. Okay. Uh, in most cases, you know, most of the students are doing memoirs. Uh, or personal essays. Very few are doing the kind of particular writing that I do. But a lot of what I teach about is applicable across the creative nonfiction field, you know, having to do with, you know, voice and structure and research and all of that stuff. Mm, great. Now, yeah. to ask a question to follow up, um, Emily asked about how do you keep all your research organized? <laughs> yes. And this might be a little bit in the weeds, but how do you? Like, are you a, do you write by hand notes, computer? Uh, I always get this question, and I wish I had a good, you know, snappy, smart answer. I'm I'm not great at this, uh, honestly. But uh, no, I don't do handwritten notes. I mean, I type I type everything on a computer. You know, if I go to the library, I bring my laptop and I take notes on my laptop. Uh, increasingly now, I do what I I guess is pretty common now among historians. It's somewhat controversial. I will often take photographs of particular documents and then go home and spend time with them, you know, taking notes at home. But I basically, uh, it's not very sophisticated, but uh, it's worked for me over a period of books. I have different folders for each topic that I'm going to be writing about. So for this book, you know, the coach of the team is named Nat Holman. He's a big character. So I had a, a folder called Holman Biography. And, you know, whenever I found information from a book that related to that, I put it into the Holman biography folder. Or if there was something about City College, I put it into a City College folder or, a, you know, a basketball history folder or about New York history, whatever it was. And then when I'm writing a chapter that has to do with that particular area, I go back and I reread that folder and I have all of the information that I've accumulated over a period of time about that from all the different books. Wow. And then meanwhile... Uh, and this is very important. You have to be footnoting as you go along. Okay. okay? This is super important. <laughs> did you, know? you learn that one the hard way? <laughs> I didn't, fortunately, but I know people who have. And, and you know, I have a friend who, who doesn't do it, and she ends up having to spend, God, like months I can't going imagine. back and yeah. putting in all the footnotes and yeah. so forth. So, no, you have to keep a running bibliography. You know, every time you use a book, you put it in the bibliography. Right. And then a running, you know, set of foot and no, they're not footnotes, they're endnotes, end notes, right. you know, uh, or otherwise you're going <laughs> to you're going to add six months to your, right. your process. Yeah. yeah. And what kind of software or apps do you use for that? Do you use anything Zero. special? No, no, mm -mm, okay. no. I'm a real troglodyte. No? When it comes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I barely have made it into the... Uh, computer age at all you know <laughs> but you know my, our son uh, is 17 and is applying to colleges now and I, I said to him you know Ezra I'm really sorry you're leaving you know you're going off to college uh, because we're going to lose our free IT support <laughs> oh, he's he knows, still available by yeah, phone trust me so, yeah. neither of my kids live at home yeah. and I still there call them go. yeah <laughs> so no I need a lot of IT support yeah. I, I don't really understand that stuff at all I mean, I, I, I'm good at sort of understanding organization. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty organized, which has been helpful. But in terms of computer stuff, I'm really not that sophisticated. So how do you, this is what I think I would face if I were trying to write a book like this, is I would look at all this 
information that I gathered and just say, oh, I, I'm glad I'm so much smarter about this, but this is way too much work now to write the book. So <laughs> but if you, you're making your living yes, from this. Yes, true. Yeah. There's more motivation. Right. But do you have to build yourself you know, a writing schedule where you say, I'm going to go to the library, I'm going to sit down from yes. 9 to 5? Yes, okay. for sure. You know, there are really two aspects of the work. You know, there's the library time and then there's the writing, the home time, the writing time. And, you know, I love to go to the library, you know, and the New York Public Library is kind of my second home. I've spent mm -hmm. got untold numbers of hours there um, over the years. Uh, and you go in just like a commuter, you know, and, and you show up at when the library opens. I think now it's 10, 10 a.m. Um, and you sit there uh, looking at material all day. And uh, what's amazing, and we know this as narrative historians, but other people don't really realize it is just how slow the process mm. is that you can spend all day reading books you know maybe looking at three or four different books um, and end up with enough material for maybe uh, a sentence or two wow. you know from the book you know or maybe if you're lucky a paragraph or maybe you hit a gold mine you know and then you get you know several pages you know I come home at the end of the day and Cassie who you know my wife you know will say you know how did it go and I'd say I, I might have gotten three or four sentences you know out of out of this day which is you know a, a pretty she, solid she uncorks day. the champagne <laughs> right right no you know it's um it's you know a little bit I've analogized it uh perhaps inappropriately to like trench warfare you know you do all of this fighting and you end up moving the trench maybe a a uh, hundred yards or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. Uh, so it's a very, very slow process. And then um, when that's done and you feel like you're ready to start writing, it's kind of a momentous decision because, you know, what happens is you find you're not really learning that much new anymore and, and the sources are beginning to replicate themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and then you start to write and then you have to treat it like a, a job, you know, and you wake up and you know work in the morning and have lunch and work in the afternoon and mm -hmm. and and I'm a very slow writer too you know like I'm a slow researcher so um, if I write all day by which I mean maybe you know four or five hours and if I get a page done or two pages done that's a really good day you know mm -hmm. so um, and then there's a lot of revision that goes on and you know for this book too especially because there was so much material and there's so many kind of subplots and characters and it could have gone off in one way or another way and the first draft that I ended up with was like ridiculous like 250,000 words or something mm -hmm. and so I had to cut way way back and I actually think that it helped the book because I had to interrogate every sentence and say is this sentence good enough does this belong in the book and if not get rid of it you know yeah. and you know we're all at an age where you know, like throwing something out is as satisfying as buying something new. Yes. You know, like deleting a bad sentence can be as satisfying as writing a good sentence. Yeah. You, know? you know, I was talking to my my daughter, who's 14. She was like 13 or 12 at the time. Um, and I said to her, you know, oh, I, I, I cut 40 pages today from the manuscript. And she said, in t typical teenage style, she said, wouldn't it have been easier just not to write them in the first place? Thank you. Thank you for that. It would have been easier to do that. But unfortunately, I didn't choose that path. As she know? rolled her eyes. Right, yeah. exactly. I've got the whole scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So what, what would you, so you're talking about just how painstaking and long this yeah. process is. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to start writing narrative history? Mm -hmm. We do have some 
writers and budding writers mm -hmm. who listen. So I'm just curious about that because I, I don't think a lot of first timers out the door mm -hmm. would maybe be able to take on a whole book. Say. Right. Well, uh, first of all, I encourage people to do it because it's a wonderful field and it's a growing field. And, you know, when I started doing it maybe about 15 years ago, there weren't that many people doing it. And, and now a lot of people are doing it and a lot of people are reading it now that weren't necessarily even aware of it. When I first started, you know, you mentioned only that the first book I did was a cookbook. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as narrative history, you know, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I read a book called The Professor and the Madman by Simon Winchester that I read that book and like it blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know you could do this, mm -hmm. you know, write a history book that reads like a novel. That's what I want to do. Suddenly I realized that's what I want to do. I guess the, you know, the advice that I would give to people is to keep your eyes open, keep looking for areas of interest, things that interest you, find characters that you find to be especially interesting or compelling historical characters that maybe are not that well known. You know, maybe there's people in your family or maybe there are people who you've heard about um, from friends or from family or whatever it might be. And try to find out everything that you can about that person and see if there's a story there, you know, a story of a life or an aspect of a life and start writing. And maybe it's going to end up being an essay. Uh, not that a whole, seems like a simpler yeah, start. Not you a know. whole book, yeah. you know, but just as a way of sort of developing your own process, your own ability to research, your own ability to find a writing voice. You know, my writing voice changes with each book depending on the topic. When I did the... 1835 book I wrote in a more kind of florid early 19th century style um, with this book I wanted a more kind of jazzy mid 20th century kind of style mm. but you know develop your voice and then just you know start looking around and you know finding the topic is in some ways the most important and the hardest part of the process because you have to find a story that has great characters, compelling characters like a novel, mm -hmm. and, a, and a narrative arc that's dramatic, that has a climactic moment, and then a story that hasn't been told before um, that's really open for you to do, and ideally a story that's commercial enough that some publisher is going to you know, want to publish it. Um, and those stories are hard to find, so you have mm -hmm. to kind of be patient. You know, I was talking about this last night. It took me 18 months to find this topic, right. um, which is basically 18 months of unemployment, Right. So that can be really frustrating, but you just kind of have to keep going. Dare we ask what you're working on next? Uh, I'm working on promoting this book. <laughs> I well, wish I, I had a, about that. I wish I had a topic. I would feel so much better if I had a topic for my next one. Uh, I don't. It just always takes me forever to find, you know, a topic. You know, N Nellie Bly, it took a long time to find that that topic. Uh, this one, it took 18 months, and I was talking about it last night. It took me 17 abandoned ideas before I finally hit on this one that met all of the criteria, you know, that nobody had written about it. Nobody is writing about it now. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. You know, you, you, you hit on a topic that doesn't seem to have been written about before, and then you discover that someone is now writing about it, you know, that they've beat you to it mm -hmm. by six months or whatever it is, and that's kind of heartbreaking. So, no, I'm, I'm not looking forward to what faces <laughs> me of trying to find my next one. Well, then we'll switch to another topic. Okay. Are you, who, when you're writing, can you read novels or other works? Yes. Or, or you can. So is there any author that 
you want to tell our listeners about that you just love to read? Oh, well, uh, you know, when I'm writing, I often will just read fiction as a, because I don't want to be too influenced by other historians, you mm-hmm. know, narrative historians, because I can find that I'm, I'm, I get jealous of what they're doing or, what, you know, whatever it might be. So I'm, I want to read stuff that's inspiring to me but is not really specific to what I'm doing. So, boy, I mean, you know, there were just so many, you know, um, in terms of nonfiction, uh, you know, Joan Didion, I just love, and uh, Robert Caro, I find to be amazing. I just reread Let the Great World Spin, McCollum McCann, you know, the opening section of that, the prologue of of Philippe Petit walking out onto the wire. I don't know if you've read that yes, book. Yes, it's uh, right on my shelf. Yes. I love that It's book. a miraculous 10 yes. pages. I mean, just yeah. miraculous what he's able to achieve in those 10 pages. You know, Saul Bellow said that a, a writer is a reader moved to emulation. And I, I find that if I'm just reading something that I love that's great, you know, whatever it may be, it makes me want to go sit down and write, you know, because I'm, I get excited and I think, God, I'd love to be able to write something as good as that. Not that I will, but I... That's the hope. I should also say that I recently served as a judge for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers contest, where all of the Discover Great New Writers nonfiction books that had been selected by booksellers were put together. I think it was like 16 or 18 books, and myself and two other judges chose the the winner, um, and then three notable books. So I got to read, like, you know, in a span of a few months, like 18 fantastic nonfiction books, mainly memoirs. And I can't say who the winner is because it gets announced oh. next week. Ooh, but there is. Right. But I will say that one of the notable books you did mention in your podcast in the last few weeks. But I won't say anything more than All that. Right. But I, my ears perked up when I heard you mention it. Yes. Well, by the time this episode airs, the winner will have been announced. So we'll put that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, yes. that's J- great. January 30th we announced. Okay. But, but they're four fantastic books. Oh, that's great. so exciting. I'm a huge fan of memoir. Yeah. I just yeah. can't say And these are great. Them. And what was great about this too was that almost all of the books were written by uh, people of color and gay people and people who were, have been sort of outside, you know, the quote unquote mainstream for, for so long. And uh, boy, I just was amazed at the just incredible stories and incredible voices. And, and it was just fantastic. So yes, definitely look for that. They're Good, great, great, sure. great recommendations. Yeah. Well, Matthew, I can tell by this conversation that Chris and I could probably talk to you for the entire day. Well, I'm yes. going to hang out. I'm just here. I'm just going <laughs> to hang out here. So. Well, now we know that you're just a subway ride away. Yeah. So hopefully we will catch up again with you soon. No pressure, you know, when you write your next book. Okay. We could also just do it for six, fun. Six years from now. Yeah. Maybe we can do a Biblio adventure to watch you doing research. Yeah, that's yeah. That would be adventure is probably too strong a word for, for that. Well, we could go to an adventure together. Yes. I'm you happy could to you do could that. be a um, happy to do that. What do we call it? A honorary cougar or cougar on the prowl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to Guilford. My pleasure. Absolutely. All right. right. Thanks so much. Thanks. This was great. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us, on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.